0: Hello to all my fellow 101 History Podcast listeners out there. Hard to believe tomorrow is Friday, and after tomorrow, we only have three days left in the month of January. I must say that uh, 2022 has gotten off to a fast start, but nonetheless, I am always glad to be on the air with all of you, my faithful uh, 101 Anchor Podcast listeners. Well, we certainly had a good um, prologue, or I should say introduction, from the previous night of John Furling's Adams versus Jefferson the tumultuous selection of 1800 and it is fair to say that uh, presidential elections have been tumultuous hopefully they won't become um, a tumultuous uh, problem long term but elections themselves have proven at times to be challenging and I had um, Mentioned a few examples from our uh, prologue, most notably from 1960, 1932, 1980, given the circumstances that we're facing, Americans. So, what all are we going to be covering in this uh, segment of Adams versus Jefferson? Well, we're going to cover a variety of um, unique uh, matters. So the most important thing is to uh, be able to talk about all of that stuff, um, given that I have uh, one hour uh, to be on the air with all of you. So the way I see it is that, you know, 60 minutes are in an hour. Think about this, in in, uh, professional and college football, they play uh, two halves, 15 minute quarters. That's 60 minutes right there. So, you know, 60 minutes may seem like a long time, but it goes by quick so the bottom line is in 60 minutes time it's best not to leave anything on the table to chance so anyways uh let's fasten our seatbelts and get ready to go um, with uh, adams versus jefferson uh, the tumultuous election of 1800 but then again we've already gotten started but then again let's keep it moving so our first leadoff question will be the following did george washington's presidency result in our nation's capital being relocated more than once does anybody want to take a guess or, an, or take a, um, a stab at it where uh, they do any of you all think that Washington's presidency resulted in the uh, nation's capital relocating more than once do you think this um, relocation um, was a good thing or a bad thing Actually, it was a good thing. However, uh, we should keep in mind that when George Washington was sworn in as president on April the 30th of 1789, the nation's capital uh, was not located where it is today. It was uh, well north of uh, what we now know as Washington D.C., or back then as uh, that would be referred to, starting out as D.C. being the District of Columbia. But when George Washington was sworn in on um, April the 30th, 1789, the capital was uh, New York City. And as a matter of fact, New York City had been America's capital dating back to 1785 under the previous government. And yes, folks, there was a previous government. For those of you who uh, were with me, from other uh, podcast uh, segments uh, or topics ranging from uh, Shays' Rebellion, the American Revolution's final battle, or um, founding uh, rivals about Madison versus Monroe and the, uh, the election that saved the nation, and then uh, talking you know, about you know, signing their rights away, about the fame and misfortune of the men who signed the United States Constitution. Does anybody want to take a guess at what this other government was that simply um, failed because the states, for one, were all separate entities, that is 13 states, and two, they pretty much ran the show to where anything the national government tried to do, given what limited powers it had at the time, (laughs) was pretty much rebuked in a heartbeat. The answer is the Articles of Confederation. Thank heavens our forefathers, in the aftermath of Shays, Shays' rebellion, most notably men like George Washington, Alexander Hamilton, and uh, James Madison came to their senses and realized that, hey, look, if this, um, if this young nation is going to survive, it's going to need a better government because what we've got is no longer relevant. And if we don't do anything about it now, America itself may no longer exist as a as an independent republic. So yes, uh, New York City had been America's capital going back to 1785 under the previous government, of the Articles of Confederation. New York City would remain America's capital prior to the end of 1790 when George Washington himself signed into law on July 16th of 1790 the Residence Act what do you think the Residence Act was about? Well, it didn't have anything to do with um, with uh, private uh, individuals uh, moving from one place to another. The Residence Act was a piece of legislation that sought to create a site. I wonder where this site might be created. Do you think it would be created well south of New York City? And do you think it would be created north of... Um, say, Richmond, Virginia. It turns out that the uh, Residence Act sought to create a site along the Potomac River. Ah! Is our our current nation's capital located along the Potomac River? Yes. So, this uh, new site would be uh, located along the Potomac River, known as the District of Columbia, where down the road america's future permanent capital would get laid out so if we don't have an exact timetable just yet many of you are thinking okay this new legislation that washington has signed into law is there a time frame for when um the new capital will officially go into effect along the potomac river well i can tell you all that here momentarily but before i do Where is the capital going to go now that it's leaving New York City? Well, the Residence Act made Philadelphia, Pennsylvania the nation's new temporary existing capital until the Potomac River site location got completed. Well, I think Philadelphia is a good halfway uh, point between to the north being New York City and to the south being this uh, new location site along the Potomac River, so Philadelphia is not far from you know New York City or from um, or from this uh, site along the Potomac River. But of course, I probably should bear in mind that in the um, late 18th century, the mileage from Philadelphia to New York and the number of days it would have taken one to have gotten there obviously was much um, was a little bit longer than uh, today's uh, modern day means of um, easier um, accessibility regarding transportation. But what is unique about December 6th of 1790, the first U.S. Congress went about officially moving from New York City to Philadelphia. So let's keep in mind not everybody um, packed up their bags right away uh, to go to Philadelphia. Some people arrived before others, but on December 6th of 1790, the um, We should keep in mind that there are not uh, 435 members in the House of Representatives in 1790. It is well below 100 as well. So the um, means of arrival uh, from New York City uh, to Philadelphia will not be as um, hectic and demanding like it probably would be in today's time to relocate everyone um, based upon the uh, unique circumstances at stake. So, under the Residence Act of 1790, Philadelphia will be the nation's capital until 1800. So that means that the new site along the Potomac River, folks, has 10 years. In other words, it's going they're going to need at least 10 years to get this uh, new um, capital spot um, up and going. A lot of things can happen in 10 years, folks, but hey, we should keep in mind that um, The Washington, D.C. that we know today was not the same Washington, D.C. that was being built in um, 1800 for a variety of reasons. So, what I found interesting about Philadelphia, and it should come as no surprise, the reason why Philadelphia, the capital, switched from New York to Philadelphia was that Philadelphia was um, was thriving from a commerce standpoint, and it had... And it was better laid out in terms of its streets, unlike New York City. In other words, Philadelphia was probably far more attractive than New York City was. New York City probably did, its main roads were probably dirt roads. I mean, that's how a lot of um, cities started out. Uh, Even Colonial Williamsburg was a dirt road. I mean, they had dirt roads. People didn't know any better, but... There were some cities that just stood out, about, stood out above the others, and Philadelphia was one of them. Now, going into 1800, was Election Day held on the first Tuesday after the first Monday in November? You know, we've been accustomed for many of years, when Election Day arrives in November, it's always the first Tuesday after the first Monday. But in 1800, there was no actual definitive, or I should say definitive, date set for uh, when it would be election day. However, in 1800, the first, um, at the start of the 19th century, being in 1800, people referred to December 3rd as election day, being the day that was set aside where Congress assigned presidential electors of each state to gather in their home capitals and cast their votes For whom they wanted um, to be uh, president so think about that folks we've been accustomed for a long time with election day being at the start of november but in 1800 it was at the beginning of december and it wouldn't be until i want to say years after the election of 1800 and well after thomas jefferson and john adams passed away as a matter of fact it would be well after all of our forefathers had passed on that it would become uh, official where Election Day would be on the first Tuesday after the first Monday of November. So we still have a ways to go. John Adams, uh, who um, in 1800 is our um, nation's second president, he became the first president to reside in the District of Columbia at the turn of the 19th century. Presidents uh, George Washington and John Adams were the only two uh, whom resided in multiple capitals. Each man lived in two cities. Washington, for George Washington, it was New York City and Philadelphia, whereas for John Adams, it was Philadelphia and the District of Columbia. Many of you all are wondering, um, what, many of you all are rather, I should say, are probably asking yourselves, was there a significant reason as to why uh, the capitol got relocated from Philadelphia to this new site along the Potomac. There are many of reasons. Some of them good, some of them others could label as uh, being questionable. One reason I will mention here, and it's just something we, we need to keep in mind, For starters, you know, uh, D.C. really was seen as a halfway point, separating north and south. Because, you know, north of Virginia, you've got Maryland. And then, say, um, you know, south of Maryland, you've got, you know, Virginia going uh, further down south. I think it's fair to say that our forefathers envisioned a capital that would um, be halfway in the middle that would... um, Fairly, that would make a good um, compromise in terms of representing uh, the interests of um, both North and South. But one reason as to why the Capitol um, got uh, relocated to D.C., it pertained to a compromise where the states that were pro-slavery, so when you think of pro-slavery states, think of North and South Carolina, think of Virginia. Even Maryland, uh, Georgia, for example, the pro-slavery states feared that the current uh, capital city, being Philadelphia to the north, would serve as a uh, haven for abolitionists. And who are abolitionists, folks? They are people who are against the institution of slavery. They want it to end altogether. So, many in the south feared that if the capital remained up north, like in Philadelphia or in New York City, that, that the um, interests of the southerners would be ignored and that it would, those cities would uh, serve as havens for abolitionists. So, I, I have to point out, folks, that um, even in 1800, slavery is still present and it's going to remain present for quite some time, um, I'm addressing I'm addressing this to you all now, so this way you all know that I'm aware of what was uh, mentioned in this book, but also the circumstances that our forefathers faced. Not just so much in creating a um, a government, one that was for the people and by the people. And yes, I know there are people out there who would question that wording. But that's the way it, that's how it was worded at the time. Uh, our forefathers were very worried about what the future held in terms of a, a government that could function. After all, Benjamin Franklin, um, well, what do you know? In 1790, Benjamin Franklin was the first of, our, um, of the signers of the U.S. Constitution to, to die. And I've said it before, I'll say it again here. He told um, individuals after the Constitutional Convention had convened, he said, the new government's a republic. It's up to you all if you can keep it. So going into 1800, a new century, we have to uh, ask ourselves, can we keep this uh, republic going, alive, even as we are relocating the capital from Philadelphia to uh, a site along the Potomac River that's going to uh, serve interests to the north as well as to the south. So uh, where exactly uh, had President John Adams been staying For 14 weeks leading up to the morning of October 13th, 1800, I don't expect many of you all to know the answer, but I think it's worth—the question itself is worth asking. Because I should—we should be reminded of this: that um, yes, Congress met, but there were times out of the year where Congress didn't meet. And a lot of that had to do with circumstances that um, members of Congress did not have control over. How about disease? Uh, So basically uh, in the summer, there were certain diseases that were uh, rampant to where if members of Congress stayed in Washington, they would be exposed to a disease and might not even um, come out alive. So it was very common for um, the commander-in-chiefs, a.k.a. the presidents, whom were, uh, in, whom were uh, running the nation, to not be in Washington at certain times out of the year, but to be uh, running the show from uh, from their um, estates that were, what you would say, miles away from the government for safety reasons. So where exactly had President John Adams been staying for 14 weeks leading up to the morning of October thirteenth, 1800? Well, he had been vacationing at his home, being a peace field in Quincy, Massachusetts, south of Boston. Well, 14 weeks away from (laughs) DC allowed John Adams to be free from the political gridlock or the partisanship that was going on during that day. And yes, folks, there was partisanship. Partisanship has been around ever since the republic itself was established, but it is probably fair to say that the level of partisanship, while it had its um, tense moments going into the start of the 19th century, it probably paled in comparison to the partisanship that sadly we see today in um, America's, um, in the, in America's uh, system of govern, governing under a democracy. Yes, a democracy is great, but even democracies have partisanship. So for John Adams, um, yes, he is, you know, he's, he's tending to his affairs and all that and just doing what he needs to do, in, including being advised on whatever is appropriate and necessary. But once he leaves on October the 13th of 1800, all of that's going to change as he um, leaves um, Peacefield, uh, Massachusetts, as he leaves his home in Peacefield, Um, in Quincy Massachusetts to return to DC so the summer of 1800 the nation's capital relocated officially relocates from Philadelphia to DC how many miles do you think it took John Adams in getting from uh, Quincy Massachusetts to um, to DC itself How, how far of a journey was it I'll give you a number it's between 300 and 500 miles The answer is 400 so for John Adams it was a 400-mile journey and how do you think he went he traveled do you think he traveled by horse and buggy the whole way or do you think he did a combination of horse and buggy and by ferry the answer is choice B he did a combination of both uh, horse and buggy or what we call uh, horse and carriage but he did uh, Part of his journey was by ferry boats as well and isn't it fair to say that there were disadvantages to a car- riding in a carriage sure uh, for one the carriage itself wasn't heated so think about it he's going to be traveling through some um brisk cool weather which he's used to being up north but you know here we are in today's modern world where you know, if it's cold outside, you know, we're going to have the heat on in the car to stay warm. He doesn't have that luxury. And, there, and this uh, carriage, of course, has no shock absorbers, meaning that at any moment's notice, his carriage could give out due to poor road conditions. Think about that, folks. I mean, that's the, that's the, that's the, the grandest of traveling you can have in that day and time. No wonder people didn't travel extensively. But, it, there, it, there is to s- it is safe to say that there is a, an alternative form of travel that's safer than going by carriage, and that's by ferry. Think about this, if John Adams is going by ferry, he knows that um, it's going to be more secure, and he won't have to worry about anything like, what do you call it, like anything giving out at a moment's notice. In other words, he won't have to deal with the treacherous uh, road conditions. Where had uh, Thomas Jefferson been residing since mid-May of 1800 when Congress finished its business? Well, Jefferson was residing at his uh, mansion located atop a tall hill that overlooked Charlottesville, Virginia, in the Blue Ridge Mountains. And I believe it's fair to say we all know the name of his mansion. It's known as Monticello in Italian, which means Little mountain." Jefferson was tending to various personal affairs, and he also was writing a manual of parliamentary rules guiding future congressional leaders on how to abide by proper rules and practices in both houses of Congress. Boy, I think it's fair to say that um, our leaders in Congress could uh, really benefit from this uh, manual even more now because the manual itself is still used today. As a matter of fact, it was first published um, not long before uh, the final outcome of, the, um, of this um, election of 1800, I should say. While at Monticello, uh, Thomas Jefferson is staying atop on all public affairs. He is reading multiple newspapers daily. But then again, Thomas Jefferson is an avid reader. Uh, his library is uh, a state of the art one. I mean, he's got books that are uh, Latin, Greek, uh, all the, uh, the classics, uh, books on law, books pertaining to astronomy, uh, books that might even pertain to meteorology because, you know, Jefferson was uh, constantly recording the daily temperatures. Uh, Jefferson didn't miss out on uh, anything when it came to. Um, leisure reading, but also to reading that was um, relevant given the circumstances he's um, pursuing and wanting to become uh, the next president. So besides uh, reading uh, multiple newspapers, Jefferson is also establishing a solid base involving political activists from many states, and if that's good enough, He's also going the extra mile by working behind the scenes, where he paid, the, paid for all mailing costs on pamphlets criticizing the opposition. Criticizing the opposition, folks. Who, what is he referring to? I'll give you all a minute to think about it while I take a sip of my tea. The opposition being the Federalist Party. Whereas John Adams left Massachusetts on october thirteenth eighteen hundred Thomas Jefferson was still at Monticello and he wouldn't be he would not be leaving Monticello until november twenty fourth of eighteen hundred. I wonder if John Adams already made it to um Washington by the time Jefferson left on november twenty fourth We'll find that out here shortly now Jefferson is going by a carriage, horse and carriage. He takes uh, four to five attendants with him, being slaves. How many days do you think it took for Thomas Jefferson to get from Charlottesville, or I should say Monticello, back up north to uh, DC? I'll give you a number. It's between um, three to five days. The answer is three. It took him three days by horse and carriage and reaching DC, and he arrived on the morning of November 27th, 1800. Okay, if he has arrived into DC, where is he going to go? Because we should keep in mind that the Washington DC of 1800 is not the same Washington DC that we know today. Jefferson arrived at a boarding house that happened to be located a couple of hundred yards from Capitol Hill. And let's keep in mind that uh, the Capitol, as we know it today, that elegant uh, Capitol Dome, that elegant building that does serve as a beacon of hope, it ought to be. uh, Meaning that um, democracy works even in times of um, uncertainty like we're facing now and that unfortunate insurrection incident that uh took well failed insurrection incident that took place last year thank heavens it failed but the capitol itself is still alive and hopefully it will still be alive years from now but thomas jefferson when he arrived to dc the boarding house was located just a couple of hundred yards from capitol hill so we should just be reminded of the journeys that it took our forefathers to get from, from their um, homes back to D.C. and where they might have um, lodged in relation to where a, um, a building stands in the present day um, setting in Washington, D.C. Now, what would have made the presidential election contests from 1796 and 1800 stand out from all others? Does anybody want to uh, take a guess? Well, for starters, these two election contests allowed uh, the Federalists and the Anti-Federalists the right to nominate two presidential candidates. Now, I know I talked briefly about some of this in the uh, prologue, but I'd like to elaborate more because it's it's just the right thing to do. It's uh, it's relevant, and I want you all to get a better understanding why, in these two elections, this um, moment happened for the time in which it took place. So, uh, secondly, um, so as I said, that um, the framers behind the U.S. Constitution did not want Congress having any power. Or control over nominating a president. And why was that? Because the framers feared that if Congress elected the president, that the president himself would dictate the legislative branch. In other words, he would be like a puppet. He would tell the legislative branch what they could and could not introduce on the floor, uh, what they could and uh, could not debate on. You know, a a president can say, uh, a president can recommend to Congress um, Topics that are worth um, having a debate on, but he can't he can't force it down their throat and say, "I demand that you all debate this on this particular topic, and if you don't, I will have you all removed." Now, the president can't do that; that's um, a violation of his powers. Third, um, each elector was allowed to cast two votes. Now. Many of you all are thinking to yourselves, if this doesn't exist now, did it change? Well, the framers of our Constitution knew that over time um, the Constitution itself would change and that there would be amendments added to the Constitution. After all, in 1800, there are ten amendments, a.k.a. the Bill of Rights, but they also knew that over time other amendments would get added. That was just part of the evolving uh, process of this document. They knew it wasn't perfect, but it was the best they could come up with at the time that it it was um, implemented. And if it weren't for that, uh, the only other solution, sadly, would have been uh, something worse that might have led to anarchy and no um, Republican government. So, for these uh, electors, each elector gets two votes. And this led many of the Constitution's framers to assume that many electors would more than likely cast one out of two votes for a candidate from their own state. In 1800, John Adams won the nomination for the presidential uh, candidate of his party, being that of the Federalist. The runner-up was Charles Coatsworth Pinckney, whom would become vice president. Thomas Jefferson was nominated for president of the Democratic-Republican Party and his and the runner-up would be Mr. Aaron Burr. So let's uh let's learn about the uh who are going to be the VP candidates. Let's start out with Aaron Burr. Was Aaron Burr the youngest of all four presidential candidates in 1800? Yes, he was. He was born in 7 in February of 1756. That means that Thomas Jefferson was about 13 years old. That means John Adams was about 21. Definitely a big age gap there to say the least. But for Aaron Burr, uh, he was 44 years old by 1800. He hailed from a well-to-do family in New Jersey. And I did not know about this until I read uh, the book on Adams versus Jefferson about a year ago, that Aaron Burr's maternal grandfather was a famous theologian by the name of Jonathan Edwards, whom helped oversee America's first Great Awakening regarding religious devotions amongst multiple Protestant sects. One of his most famous uh, literary works from uh, religious literary works was uh, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. Small world, to say the least, with the uh, connections... Sadly for Aaron Burr, he was less than five years old when his parents died, including his maternal grandfather, Jonathan Edwards. Between 1758 and 1759, uh, young Aaron Burr and his sister lived with, the William Sh- lived with William Shippen's family in Philadelphia and then afterwards with a maternal uncle. Not to get off track, but real quick, if any of you all don't know who the Shippen family is, They were a very prominent uh, merchant um, family in Philadelphia, whom were loyalists. uh, That that is, they were loyal to uh, king and country. As a matter of fact, uh, William Shippen um, had a daughter named Peggy, who went on to marry a Continental Army officer, whom would later become a traitor, being none other than Mr. Benedict Arnold. I would probably have to tell more about that in a different um, topic, being that of Benedict Arnold and Peggy Shippen. But I should also point out that there is a college in uh, Philadelphia, in uh, Pennsylvania rather, called uh, Shippensburg University named after the uh, Shippen family for their uh, prominence in, um, not just in politics, but for their prominence in uh, the greater Philadelphia society. At age 13, Aaron Burr was accepted at Princeton University, but back then it was often referred to as the College of New Jersey. He joined the American Whig and Cleosophic societies, being those of literary and debating groups. He graduated in seventy in 1772 with honors at age 16. And what do you know, he attended college with a future forefather in James Madison. As a matter of fact, uh, the president, I want to say, of uh, Princeton or the College of New Jersey there more than likely was uh, George Witherspoon, who was a uh, also a professor of theology. He was the only um, uh, minister or uh, person of theology whom signed uh, the Declaration of Independence. So um, if you hear of George Witherspoon, think of him as one of the 56 men who signed the Declaration of Independence and that he was uh, a president of uh, Princeton University. Two years after um, Aaron Burr graduated, at one point he was thinking about becoming a, um, a minister, but he switched his career from theology to law. However, his law studies were interrupted by the war, being that of the American Revolutionary War. Burr himself served in the Continental Army from 1775 to 1779. Did Aaron Burr resume his legal studies after time spent serving in the Continental Army, a.k.a. the Revolutionary War. Yes, and the good news to report is that by 1782, not long after uh, the British had uh, surrendered at Yorktown from October of 1781, but in 1782, Aaron Burr himself was admitted to the bar in Albany, New York, New York's capital, where he started his own law office. And besides being a lawyer, Aaron Burr had plenty of other uh, successful um, accomplishments. He served in other capacities like being a state assemblyman from 1784 to 1785. He even introduced a resolution in the uh, state legislature um, outlawing uh, slavery in New York. Let's keep in mind, folks, that um, There are still plenty of um slavery um i will admit was um was visible pretty much in all of colonial america it wasn't confined to the upper and the lower south i mean slavery uh, existed in other um colonies uh middle and northern colonies and i'm not trying to get political and all but i'm just telling you all what i know and it's not something that should be ignored but it is part of a broader story that you know does need to be told, and the best way to do it is to present it in a manner that's um that's uh, appropriate, a manner that's um formidable, a manner that's um that's relevant to where all of you can walk away learning something that you didn't know before, and so that it's not uh, forgotten. But, anyways, back to um, our focus that yes, Aaron Burr. Um, served as a state assemblyman from 1784 to 1785 in new york he went on to become the state attorney general in 1789. 1791 he got elected by the new york state legislature as a u.s senator and we have to remember folks for the longest time up until the start the start of the 20th century or right after that Up until that time, uh, U.S. Senators were elected by their state legislatures, so there was no such thing as popular uh, statewide vote on a a U.S. Senator at one time. And Mr. Burr defeated uh, the incumbent, General Philip Schuyler, Alexander Hamilton's father-in-law. And this has repercussions uh, because it will play out somewhere down the road in the not-so-far-distant future. I didn't know this either until I read the book, uh, but Aaron Burr, believe it or not, folks, ran for the presidency in 1796. He came in fourth place. But come 1800, Thomas Jefferson has agreed to have Aaron Burr on his ticket. And why is that, folks? Because Thomas Jefferson needs someone from a different region of America who not only shares the same ideals as he does, but he needs someone on his ticket that can balance. You know, Jefferson um, being from the South, Burr from the North, they need to be able to have a balanced ticket to where they can draw interests, not just from one region, but from all of America. So. Aaron Burr is going to do his part by going behind the scenes and work towards garnering electoral votes on Jefferson's behalf. So it's fair to say that this is a compromise right here, okay? I, I I'm from I'm Thomas Jefferson, I'm from Virginia. I've won my party's nomination, but I need someone from a different region who can help um bring this party together. And that's the way that's how history has shown, that's how candidates have come together in different regions, they may not agree on everything 100 percent, but they have enough in common to where a ticket can be balanced. So moving on now we've talked about Aaron Burr now we're going to talk about John Adams as vice presidential candidate and where did uh, John Adams's VP candidate hail from? Did he hail from uh, up north or up or, or from down south? Well, uh, t- we know Thomas Jefferson's can- VP candidate came from up north, and it- and this will be the opposite. For John Adams, his VP candidate comes uh, down south and uh, being uh, Mr. Charles Coatsworth Pinckney, whom hailed from Charleston, South Carolina. Well, what do we know about Charles Pinckney? Well, I do know that the Pinckney family, uh, based upon my um, knowledge of um, families in South Carolina, when I think of prominent families, I tend to think of like the Pinckneys, the Rutledges, the Middletons, the Draytons, um, the Laurens, uh, just to name a few uh, prominent um, families in South Carolina. Of course in the 19th century it'll be John C. Calhoun, but in the 18th century uh, your most prominent families are Rutledges, um, Pinckney, um, Laurens, um, Middleton, uh, Drayton, so, uh, Charles Coatsworth Pinckney is born in late February of 1746. He comes from a prominent family of aristocratic planters. He followed into his father's footsteps by practicing law. I found it interesting that uh, Charles Coatsworth uh, Pinckney's father defended religious dissenters. And I know often that, uh, that history has proven that religious dissenters were not always um, looked upon um, favorably but uh, Charles's father uh, defended them uh, ardently Charles Pinckney's mother was Elizabeth Lucas and what what makes her very unique is that she helped spearhead the production of indigo in South Carolina does anybody know what indigo is well indigo is used for dyeing clothes blue made from the peas of certain tropical plants so basically, it's a dark blue dye substance. Indigo grew on land, which I found interesting that it grew on land um, not suited for such um, well-known commodity, commodities in South Carolina like tobacco and rice. Basically, indigo was often referred to as blue gold. So, you know, if you know you have land that's not suited for tobacco or rice, don't let it wither away. And uh, it's fair to say that South Carolinians were very uh, successful in going with uh, indigo. Not to get off track here, but uh, what I find interesting here is that, you know, John Adams has uh, selected Charles Coatsworth Pinckney as his VP running mate. For those of you who remember the movie The Patriot with Mel Gibson and the late Heath Ledger, the uh, story takes place um, in South Carolina's low country. One of the scenes um, early on in the movie was uh, when uh, G- Mel Gibson, who plays uh, Benjamin Martin, the family goes to, they, they, did, they didn't call it Charleston, they called it Charlestown. So they are um, attending a, um, a meeting of official business. And an officer is there, He's requesting that South Carolina be the next um, state to uh, declare its um, independence uh, from England because I want to say at least eight, other, eight of the 13 states have already uh, submitted their official separation from England. One of the um, legislators, obviously I could tell he was a loyalist based upon his wording of the following, prepare to listen. Massachusetts and Virginia might be at war, but South Carolina is not. Hear, hear. Well, what do you know? Thomas Jefferson being a Virginian has a running mate from up north. John Adams from Massachusetts has a running mate from down south. Virginia and Massachusetts are at the forefront of the leading uh, candidates whom are representing their parties as presidents. 1800 presidential candidates so South Carolina did get something out of this they were uh, they have a candidate who's on um, on the Federalist ticket he may not be the president but he's got um, he's got a a good um, sign of support from a northerner in mr. John Adams in 1753 Charles's father moved the family to uh, London England where he served as the South Carolina colony agent Charles went on to study law at Middle Temple in 1764, and come 1769, he was accepted to the English Bar. In 1773, uh, he returned to South Carolina and married Sarah Middleton, whose father was Henry Middleton. And why is Henry Middleton so unique? Well, he served as the second president of the Continental Congress, and Sarah had a brother named Arthur, whom signed the Declaration of Independence these connections folks really do pay off did uh, charles coatsworth pinckney serve in the american revolutionary war yes he saw action as far north as brandywine in germantown pennsylvania in 1777. come 1780 he served as a brigadier general only to see charleston south carolina fall into the hands fall into British hands in May of that year, and Charleston was the jewel city of the South. So when Charleston fell, the uh, campaign in the South was starting to see some of its darkest moments. And it's bad enough that Charleston fell into the British hands, or into the hands of British forces, but in May of 1780, Charles Coatsworth Pinckney was taken prisoner of war and stayed as one until the summer of 1782, the only way he got out was via prisoner exchange. Those who were of higher rank, depending on uh, the circumstances at hand, if there, if the enemy had a certain number of officers that matched up with what the opponent had, and there were no signs of aggression, then a prisoner exchange took place. So, after the war ends, uh, Charles resumes. Um, his career of practicing law, but sadly, in 1784, his wife, Mary, died, leaving him a widower with three daughters. He remarried in 1786 to Mary Sneed, uh, the daughter of a prominent Charleston merchant. So, yes, the post-war years saw Charles Pinckney return to practicing law, including his signing and attending the U.S. Constitutional Convention in Philadelphia. And come 1796, he was accepted as George Washington's, um, he accepted George Washington's request as the um, minister, or I should say ambassador to France. All right, now we're going to move on and talk about some um, geographical um, information going into 1800, because we do need to know what the population of America is at this time. We also need to know if America has expanded to where more states have been added into the Union or not. So uh, how many states were added to the Union shortly after George Washington became president? All right, I'll give you a number. Uh, The number is between uh, two and four. The answer is three. Anybody want to take a guess at what three states were admitted to the Union after George Washington becomes president? Well, I'll give you a hint. One is to the north, and two We might think of them as being in the south, but we technically now could think of them as being states that are along uh, the Ohio Valley or uh, Tennessee Valley area. We could think of these as states that one could be west of Virginia, the other could be technically southwest of Virginia. So the one state to the north was Vermont. And thank heavens, Vermont's in now because New York and New Hampshire had been fighting for some time over who had... uh, territorial rights to what we now know as vermont so vermont is now a state to the north the two states uh the other two are kentucky and tennessee so there you have it folks we've gone now from 13 to 16 states in 1800 by 1800 the u.s population stands at what number i'll give you a hint I could tell you this much. In 1776, about 2.5 million Americans, uh, the U.S. population stood at about 2.5 million. So, has the U.S. population grown come 1800, close to a quarter of a century later? Yes, it has doubled in size since 1776. The population stands at 5,250,000. People moved in droves westward past the Appalachian Mountains into the Northwest Territory. Most notably, what we know as Ohio, Indiana, Illinois, Michigan, and Wisconsin are part of it, but probably at this time, more people are going into what we now know as Ohio, Indiana, and Illinois. I should point out that in 1800, only one person in 25 lived in a city with a population of 1,000 or more. Philadelphia was America's largest city. It had a population of 69,000. That's a lot. The other cities that are big in size, like Boston, New York, Charleston, they're probably somewhere above 20,000, but not anywhere close to Philadelphia. It's 69,000. Going into 1800, did, did any American city have what we call smokestacks? What are smokestacks? They are chimneys, or what we call funnels, that discharge smoke from such things as ships or factories. So, do you all think going into 1800, there were any smokestacks in America? No. Bottom line is, in 1800, folks, America is, in, is still is in a pre-industrial uh, state. We're not anywhere close to being in, in an industrialized nation. We are pretty much an agrarian society still. Let's uh, learn these facts here. Um, One American in six was enslaved in 1800. So one out of six, um, I did the math, that's uh, 0.166 or 0.17, a.k.a. 17%. That's about nearly uh, 900,000 people. Slavery is still legal, folks, in 1800, except in Massachusetts and Vermont. All northern states except Delaware and New Jersey began calling for the practices of eventual termination. 150,000 being the rough estimate number of free African Americans living in the United States. Roughly half and about three quarters of African Americans uh, were residing up north and they were free. Whereas in 1800, only about 10% of all African Americans um, in the Upper South are free. So that's quite a uh, contrast in numbers, but it's just important to know where we are going into in a new century where ballpark figures stand from a statistical standpoint. What made John Adams different from the other three presidential candidates? John Adams never owned a slave. Did you know that, folks? He never owned a slave. He had enough money to afford a slave or two, but he refused to participate in the practice. John Adams knew that it was an evil institution. And the best way to go about avoiding it altogether was not to have any involvement in in hiring out people from another race he didn't want to be seen as perhaps as someone who um, who was steering off in the wrong direction but i must uh i guess i have to point out too that uh, our forefathers dealt with unpleasant issues of their day slavery was one of them many of our forefathers did marry into um, the uh, institution um, given that their wives had came from, um, what do you call it, well-to-do plantations where uh, land and money um, simply could not be ignored. But we just have to keep in mind that that this should not diminish our forefathers in no way whatsoever, but we just have to remind ourselves that they uh, lived in um, trying times, and they lived in times where... They, where cert- were in certain circumstances, the matters before them could not have been eradicated overnight. It took John Adams. Many of you all are now wondering how, just exactly how long did it take John Adams to get from uh, Quincy, Massachusetts, uh, down to Washington D.C.? It took him just shy of three weeks. He arrived uh into d c around early afternoon of November first eighteen hundred, but what did uh John Adams see well, I mean he had to have seen work going on in d c now, let's keep in mind, folks there are no bulldozers, there are no cranes. people are working i mean they've got tools but it's much different compared to uh, the work that goes on uh, today at a construction site, for example. John Adams did see uh, people working everywhere, but he saw slaves working everywhere. Yes, he may have been pleased to see that work was being done, but John Adams knew deep down in his heart that Washington, D.C. was nowhere close to being completed how can this capital that is supposed to be a bridge between the north and the south come 1800 10 years after the residence act was passed how can this um new uh capital site be functioning when it's not even anywhere close to being done abigail adams John Adams' wife arrived into Washington come mid November, about roughly two weeks after John did. She characterized Washington as a wilderness. How so? She saw Washington as an area or place that simply was not inhabited, could not have been inhabited by people. Washington, in Mrs. Adams' eyes, simply was not attractive did not come anywhere close to having the elegance or charm that Philadelphia, the nation's previous capital, possessed. In other words, Philadelphia was this vital commercial hub. Hundreds of ships are coming in and out, sending goods overseas, sending goods up north, south. What in the world could Washington, D.C. have to offer that Philadelphia already has, and is probably at least more than 10 times far better than what this new capital is going to have to offer. However, Mrs. Adams does keep her personal feelings to herself, because come Election Day, December 3rd, for John and Abigail Adams, they know that on that day, December 3rd, 1800, will mark a day that will either make or break the Adams family's future in America's new capital, especially as a new century had already begun. Well, I think it's fair to say we've covered a lot. And we have learned a lot, not only about where Jefferson and Adams were lodging until their return back to D.C., but we've learned a lot about their running mates. Well, I know when I'm on the air again next, we're going to talk more about what leads up to 1800, but before we can really get to the heart of 1800, is it fair to say that we should learn a little bit more about John Adams and Thomas Jefferson's upbringings? Absolutely. So that's just one of uh, many things that we will discuss when I'm on the air again next. Well, thank you for your time as always, and I look forward to being back on the air again soon. Um, Thank you again uh, from the bottom of my heart to all of you, my fellow 101 Uh, Anchor podcast listeners, you guys do a terrific job in getting that word out to uh, people out there who aren't familiar with Anchor. Just continue to do the work that you're doing, because it is paying off. Thank you for everything, and take care, and I look forward to being back on the air again with you all next time. Stay safe.